Um, and let's, as we begin this story of Jonah, let's pray together. Has, has everyone had sight of the study notes? They, they may help you along, along the journey. Um, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the great at work in the book of Jonah. Thank you that you are not the God that he wanted you to be, and you're not the God that he thought you were going to be to him. Pray that today you will refresh our understanding and imagination of who you are and enable us to worship you and praise you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jonah had a whale of a problem with his God. He wanted... I've been working on that all week. (laughs) I'll use that again. Jonah had a whale of a problem with his God. He was someone who had grown up in a relatively small country where on either side of it had been oppressive forces for centuries past. And every now and then, someone from the east would come and invade or someone from the south would come and invade and his people would be decimated by them. Currently, his big problem was with the people in the east And he had this tension with God in that he didn't really think that God was quite up to the job that he wanted God to be up to. In other words, why couldn't God sort out these horrible, wicked people and bring judgment on them and devastate them as he blinking well ought to? (laughs) He had been reading, controversially, the Jerusalem Express, (laughs) And the Jerusalem Express, day by day, said, these people need sorting out. And he wondered when God was going to sort out these horrible foreigners who kept oppressing God's people. So God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Here's Jonah's great opportunity He's a prophet, a professional religious character, and God's sending him eastwards where he can denounce these oppressive horrors (laughs) and where God will then bring the judgment he's been waiting for all his life. Except, as we read through the whole story, we realize that Jonah doesn't really believe that God's going to be the one to sort out these horrible, oppressive people. If you flee into chapter 4 with me for a moment, he explains to God in a conversation why he was so quick to go the opposite direction. And he says in verse 2, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. (laughs) He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, probably partly because it's a pretty hard gig to go to a big city and say you're all going to (laughs) die. Although there's something in him that wants to say that to them, he's very, very keen on judgment. We'll see that later in this chapter as well with regards to himself. But his presenting issue is he doesn't believe that the God of the Old Testament is the sort of God who will bring random vindication on people. Now, when we come to use that phrase, the God of the Old Testament, it's become a catchphrase post-Jesus, post some heretics in the first century, for thinking about a God that we think is sort of arbitrary, wrathful, judging, sending plagues, and that sort of thing, don't we? But the revelation of who God is that is presented in the book of Jonah is one that dates back to the time of Moses. Look again at 4 verse 2. 
a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you remember if you were here four years ago, we spent the whole summer looking at that phrase, a critical phrase in the Old Testament, given to Moses to exclaim who God's character is after the plagues of Egypt. The story of the Old Testament isn't the story of a God randomly, arbitrarily sending judgment on people who don't deserve it. It's a story of a God who is very, 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 very slow to anger. And only when the full pain of people's sin and, and wickedness has risen up to a certain point does God on occasion intervene And when he intervenes, it's normally to try and preserve a remnant of people who he can then bring salvation to everyone through. So he rescues the remnant Israel, who he's put his promise into, so that they can bless all of the nations. He doesn't judge the wicked people of Cana for century upon century upon century until their level of wickedness is so great that they need judging. He relents from judging people until the time of Noah, over centuries. And if you're reading the Jerusalem Express at this point, the Jerusalem Express is saying, why isn't God doing some of this judgment stuff? That's what we pay him for, isn't it? That's what he's supposed to do, right the wrongs. Because actually every human heart wants God to be a judge. You know that because if you've ever had one of those coffee table or Christmas lunch conversations with people where they say, Why is there suffering in the world? As it explains in the notes in a a box that you can read later, we're basically asking for God to judge between good and bad and get rid of what is bad. There's something in us that longs for God to be a judge. We say it in our creed. When Jesus comes again, he's going to judge the world. It's vital that God is a good and fair judge. But Jonah's got a problem with the Old Testament God. He doesn't believe He's going to be harsh enough to his enemies. So he gets on a boat and runs far, far away to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is a place of almost sort of mythical, exotic, idealized character. In 1 Kings 10.22, it reports that Solomon's fleet fetched from Tarshish gold and silver and ivory and monkeys and peacocks, all exotic and affluent, Paul Perkin puts it this way, in popular imagination, it was a distant paradise, a Shangri-La, just where a talented prophet of God with a good CV would expect to land his next key job. But it actually represents exotic escapism. In fact, Nineveh, where Jonah has been told to go, was in the far east, and Tarshish, where he actually headed for, is in the far west, in Spain, at the opposite end of the known world. It's Nineveh. And so one of the obvious questions from this passage is, you know, where's your Tarshish? (laughs) I remember hearing a friend of mine talk on this, uh, about his Tarshish, his place that isn't Nineveh and isn't where he is now. (laughs) It's not the place he's supposed to go, and it's not the place where he is now. And his Tarshish, a guy called Paul Bradbury, some of you from Acton Green Church will, will remember him from Oak Hill Fellowship Times, he, his Tarshish wished to be a postmaster on a small Scottish island <laughs> where everything ran to clockwork and there was only a limited amount of work. His, his day job was being a vicar. He quite liked the idea of the routine uh, there. And every now and then he'd find himself fantasizing about this limited job which, which worked well and he could just get on with. 
And I imagine that for you, as for me, we often have a Tarshish. It may be a future place. It may be a place far in the past where we like to reside. It may be a romantic novel or a film or some other thing where we escape into. Jonah's heading to this exotic retreat. He sets off from Joppa, founds a ship, pays the fare, and sails away. And then we find something else out about God right through this chapter. God is able to move the wind and the waves and the whales far more easily than he's able to move the whining prophet. It's really interesting to ask that question, why can't he move the whining prophet as easily as he can move the whale and the wind and the waves? So he moves the wind, he moves the waves, a storm breaks up, the ship's threatened, all the sailors are afraid, and they're foreigners. That's really important. They're not Jewish people, they're foreigners, and they all cry out to their own different gods. These are all people who would be denounced by the Jerusalem Express, and they're crying out to gods. They're throwing the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, and Jonah's sleeping down below the deck. Who else, Christian people, do we know who slept through a violent storm in the Gospels. Here is, in the Gospels, Jesus doing what Jonah is doing here. And, and everything's panicking, but Jonah has been put to a deep, deep sleep. The captain goes to him and says, how can you sleep? Pray, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. I wonder if the captain knew what Jonah's job was. I mean, this is one of the bishops of his day <laughs> being moved across the divine chessboard and he's decided that he's going to run in the opposite direction to the way he should be going. <laughs> I wonder if he knew that he was a bishop. And he says, pray. Does Jonah pray? Have a look with me down at the passage. Not a word of prayer escapes his lip in the middle of a storm. Instead, he, call, he says, uh, by the end of the chapter, let God judge me instead. <laughs> he doesn't petition God, he just wants to be judged because he knows he's done wrong. He's got into that judgment loop where he's just fed up and angry and sad and running away and he just wishes it could all be sorted out and he's part of the problem. He's quite happy to be judged as well as the Ninevites at this stage. The sailors, however, come out as being the heroes of this chapter, quite surprisingly. Non-Jewish sailors become the heroes of the chapter. They cast lots in their way and realize Jonah's the problem. They ask him why, why he's done it. He explains that his God is the God who's made heaven, the sea, and the land. This terrifies them. and they, they ask what he's done. They knew he was already running away from the law because he'd told them so. The sea's getting rougher and rougher and rougher and rougher. They say to him, what, what are we going to do to make the sea calm? We've thrown everything aboard. What do we do? You're the one whose God made everything, who made the sea. What should we do? And Jonah just does this, oh, chuck me overboard thing. <laughs> it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. extraordinary sort of defeatism from the runaway prophet in this phrase, isn't it? He's just fed up with everything. Just chuck me overboard. I give in. Get rid of me. Chuck me overboard. I mean, think of the other things he could have said. He could have said, okay, I'm really sorry. I'm going to pray now and see what God did. 
Do you remember the other person who was sailing west on a divine mission in the New Testament who runs into a a great big storm, sailing across the same Mediterranean Sea? Do you remember the Apostle Paul on his journey to to Rome? He's lashed to the mast. The soldiers are going to kill them all, and he has a dream, a revelation from God. Angelic revelation coming to him, saying, no one's going to be... Uh, no one's going to die on this boat today. And the captain believes him. Jonah surely could have done what Paul did. And they could have all landed happily in Maltese Island and been safe. But Jonah's like past all that, past caring, chucked into the sea. The men don't want to do it, but eventually they cry to God and say uh, basically something like, Father, forgive us for that we know not what we're doing. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. They take him, and as soon as he touches the waters, the sea grows sovereignly and divinely calm. And once again, for the second time, the hero sailors of this chapter fear God, pray to him, make sacrifices to him, and vow to him. In other words, they've been thoroughly converted (laughs) to following Jonah's God. And come out of chapter 1 in an extraordinary place of faith and understanding of the powerful, mighty, wonderful God who is in charge of all things. But bubble, 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 bubble. Jonah is sinking under the water, getting exactly what he knows he deserves. When with a big gulp, God's grace invades the situation and keeps him safe in a womb-like environment where for three days and three nights he's going to have the chance to be dead and then rise again in a pattern that is going to punctuate the whole New Testament and make us think about what Jesus did. Through his death, Jonah causes the salvation of the sailors, the calming of the storms. God is the one who sovereignly puts him to death, as it were, but God saves him and he will rise again. So the book of Jonah, amazing, amazing story. What do we want to take away from it today? Well, the first thing is I'd love to encourage you to take the 20 minutes that it takes to read it from start to finish and then read it with the study notes so that you can start to get into it yourself, start to catch this character and what God's saying. Why is he so cross? Why is he so angry? Is it not okay to be angry with the horrible things going on around him? Maybe he should be riling and rallying against things. Maybe God should just be judging the wicked and sorting them out. Maybe you feel Jonah's on the right path. Or maybe you can see a bigger picture than that. A picture of great cooling over Jonah's life, but also over the people of Israel, that remnant that God spared. And the cooling was this, that all of the people of the world should get to know that God is their saviour and their rescuer and their helper. This book written to racist, xenophobic Judeans in the 5th century B.C., It's designed to provoke them into their bigger cooling that all the nations should be saved. In our current political environment, 
how much do we need to hear the words of Jonah? That God's love is for everyone. And he wants us to go to everyone so that they can be saved as well. The book of Jonah, commend it to you. Uh, Meditate on it, muse on it. Ponder, have you got a Tarshish that you're trying to run away to? Know that it's not all it's cracked up to be. Think about those storms that have come in your life. Were they accidents or were they intentional? (laughs) If they seem to be accident or sovereign, was God doing something in them anyway? (laughs) Whether they were just the storms of life, was he speaking to you in them? Where did he try and rescue you? And what's your response now? And maybe, have you prayed? (laughs) Have you prayed? Or are you just giving in and going, chuck me overboard, I'm not worthy, and nor is anyone else. (laughs) One of the reasons Jonah is such a great book is that most of us can relate to his classic moody misery. (laughs) And there's hope for him, and there's hope for all of us to come.